Well, it's good to see you all again. Wonderful to see you face to face, as uh, Caroline said, rather than looking at a camera. Have you heard of the story about a barber? This barber was extremely negative and cynical person. And so one day he was cutting someone's hair and this person said, you know what, I'm going for holidays. And this barber said, why are you going for holidays? It's such a waste of time and money. You know, you go to these places, you took photos, and after you've forgotten where you have been, where you took these photos, you have thousands of photos in the computer, but you never look at it. It's a waste of time and money. And then he said, what airline are you flying with? And he said, I'm going with this airline. Why are you flying with these airlines? It is lousy service, bad food, and the service is atrocious. He said, where are you going? I'm going to Italy. Oh, why are you going to Italy? It's crowded. You're eating pizza every day. And there's mafia there, you know? He said, what are you doing in Italy? I'm going to visit the Pope. I'm going to ask the Pope for a blessings. You think you will see the Pope? You will never get near him at all. And that's how he ended the conversation. A few months later, he returned. And, uh, and, he, and the guy said, you know what? I, I went for holiday. It was great. I flew this airline. The service was fantastic. The food was great. The seat was comfortable. And I went to Italy. I had pasta. I have pizza. Italian food is one of the best. And guess what? I saw the Pope. And not only I saw the Pope, the Pope came and gave me a blessings. And not only the Pope gave me a blessing, the Pope said something to me. He said, what did the Pope say to you? The Pope asked me, who is your barber? I have touched many heads before. This is the worst haircut I've ever seen. Today, the letter that we're going to study is the letter to Philadelphia. There is no negative words from Jesus. This is the letter other than the second letter, Smyrna. Uh, there was no words of condemnation, no words of uh, criticism, only commendation, only good words. And many people say the Philadelphia church is known as the faithful church. And I think there is very important lessons that we want to learn because there's only positive words that Jesus said to this uh, church. So out of the seven churches, only this church and the, and the church in Smyrna receive unqualified praise and approval. They deeply please Jesus. So here in Revelation chapter 1, we've been going through the last uh, a couple of months, we find the disciple John living on the island of the coast of Turkey, Patmos Island, writing about 95 AD. He's about in his 90s or late 80s. Some 65 years after Jesus has died and resurrected. And he was given a vision of Christ. And Jesus gives John a message to these seven churches recorded in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation. In Asia Minor, the, the area we know now as Turkey. I just want to have a show of hands. How many of you actually have been there? Yes? Good. You remember Philadelphia or you've forgotten? Or oh, like the barber, it's a waste of time and money. 
So the message in this particular letter is to endure suffering, stay close to Jesus, keep His Word, and you can withstand anything. So what I want to do this morning is just plow through with you this text. Uh, chapter 3, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to chapter 3. And I would like to read from verse 7 down to verse 13. I'm going to read it first without showing you the uh, uh, words on the PowerPoint. And then I'm going to give you four points. It's very standard over the letter. It's a city. It mentions something about the city, something about Christ, the commendation, and then finally, the crown, the rewards if you stay on the right path. So let me just read the text to you first, and then I will unpack the text for you. So you might want to close your eyes if you feel a bit sleepy now. Uh, shut your eye a little while for a minute or two, and then I will wake you up again. Uh, verse 7 says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come, and they're going to bow down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one can take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let me tell you a few things about the city. It was founded in 140 BC. It was one of the youngest of the seven cities. So out of the seven, Philadelphia is the youngest of all. And it was given this name, Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, in honor of a guy by the name of Atlas II. Atlas is a, is a, uh, is a prince, is a, is a brother of a king, Eumerus, because they have such good relations. The two brothers are so close. And King Eumerus once went for war. He has been, he has been said that he, he didn't return and they thought that he had died. And so uh, Atlas took over as king. But when his brother actually returned, didn't die in the war, he gladly gave up his position and returned it back to the brothers. And there are numerous times where Rome actually wanted to support him to overthrow his brother, but he said, no, this is my brother. I'm not going to do that. And so the name was named after, uh, in his honor for his loyalty uh, to his own brother. So Philadelphia means brotherly love or brother lover. It is, it, is, it is 
founded as an outpost, as a missionary post, not to uh, spread the gospel, but actually to advance Greek culture and language. So they have that to advance Greek culture, and it, it, it was quite successful in converting some city into uh, uh, they call Hellenize, Hellenism, you know, Hellenize it. Uh, they, they adopt Greek culture in a sense. So it was, it, it was that, that particular city, Philadelphia, was a missionary outpost for spreading Greek culture and language in that region. And Philadelphia also situated, located nearer to the fault line. And as such, continued to suffer numerous earthquakes, or even there's a major earthquake in 17 AD. And, and for many years after that, they continued to endure years of aftershocks and tremors after 17 AD. Now, this is very crucial because afterwards, when Jesus talked about his rewards, he is speaking in that context of building pillars and all that. Uh, because they are very prone to earthquakes. So this context is, is essential. But because this is such a, a, a good city and, and strategic position for trade and all that, Rome was very quick in coming around to rebuild Philadelphia whenever they suffer earthquake. And a uh, number of times. And the city showed their gratitude by establishing a temple for the Roman Caesars, uh, Emperor Tiberius. And they went as far as naming the city after, after the emperor, called Neo Caesarea, which is New City of the Caesar. And a number of times they have different names. And again, it is significant when Jesus pronounced the, re the reward afterwards, because the city kept changing name before they eventually settled for Philadelphia. And like it or not, this is one of the church, seven churches that lasted the longest. They lasted for centuries. Christians in Philadelphia stood firm even after the region was overrun by Muslims and Byzantine Empire and all the Ottoman Empire. And, and they, they stand, stood tall all the way until 14th century. Today, there is an Orthodox church known as Philadelphia St. John Church. I mean, who else would you name St. John? In... Uh, in the part of the Turkey now is called Alash Hill, surrounded by 45 mosques. Philadelphia is a model and a loyal, faithful church, and we are going to look at it now. So that is a city, and now I just want to uh, carry on with verse 7 that tells us, oh, yes, I decided to put this up, a faithful church. If, uh, there's nothing significant about this church. It's just beautifully taken. And uh, who say that uh, uh, a big church is considered successful? Where did we get the idea from? And we're going to look at what Jesus said a faithful church is supposed to be. None of those uh, criteria that many of us um, uh, operate with the, with the influence of uh, secular world and how the world measures success and all that. We, we import that into everything we do, including ministry. And so I just purposely put it up there to say that while a small church, a countryside church, a tiny little church, they can be considered a successful church. They can. They should be considered a successful church and a faithful church. And so, so let's move on to tell you something about Christ. This is the actual place in Philadelphia now. Uh, some of the pillars still, still remains. 
uh, bring back some memories for some, some people who have been there. If you haven't looked at your photos, yeah, there you go. You know the photos for you to see. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. In just that one verse alone, there are threefold description of Christ. Jesus described himself as the Holy One, the True One, and the One who holds the key of David. He said he is the Holy One. The Holy One is one of the titles of Jesus. He is the Holy Throughout Scriptures, he has been known as that, the Holy One. This is distinctive attribute of God. He is set apart. He is perfect. He is pure. He is the standard of right and wrong. He is the standard of good and bad. He is the standard because He is a holy God. He is perfect in His being. There is nothing evil in God. So you be careful. We must not never attribute anything evil to God because God is perfect. He is pure. He is the standard of right and wrong and good and bad. He is the mark. He is the standard. He is holy. He is set apart. And only He is right to judge because He knows all things. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. We can't judge. We are not asked to judge. Only He can judge because He knows all things. For us, we cannot because we don't know enough. We don't know people's motives. We just don't have enough to make a judgment on people's lives and all that. Only God can do that. He is holy, and here it is also said that He is true. Contrary to the Jewish opposition that they face, which we're going to see later on, Jesus is a true Messiah. Contrary to other religious gods they face, Jesus is a true God. So if you want to separate error from reality, look to the person and words of Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. However, people say how arrogant we are. This is what Jesus said. I am the way, I am the truth. He did not merely come to preach a gospel. He himself is the gospel. He did not merely come to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not merely come to show the door. He said, I am the door. He did not merely come to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He did not merely come to point the way. He said, I am the way. He's not showing you the way. He said, I am the way. And thirdly, he, is, he holds the key of David. And of course, that verse, if you're familiar, especially uh, Caroline told me, those who are uh, on Wednesday night group, you just studied Isaiah, and came across Isaiah chapter 22 that talks about uh, the key of, to the house of David. In Isaiah chapter 22, we find the story of a corrupt leader of the Jews. And then he was re being replaced by an, an honorable, honorable name by the name of Eliakim. Eliakim has a key to the treasure. He has a key to, of David. So it was placed on his shoulder, the key to the house of David. And of course, that pro prophecy is to, to say that eventually Jesus is the Messiah that opened the door way to God. So what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So the idea of the key of David is tied to the idea of opening and closing doors. You know, when you have key, you, you have power. Jesus comes as the one who is supremely in charge of opening and closing. He has the ultimate authority. 
ultimate authority. He has a sovereign authority to decide who comes in and who goes in. Jesus has the keys of David, the keys to the messianic kingdom. And when he opens the door, no one can shut. When he shut, no one can open. So you won't be able to climb into the kingdom by any other means. You must come through the door. And Jesus is the one who controls the door. Remember John chapter 10? Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and will go out and find pastures. So three things he talks about Christ. He is holy, he is the truth, and he has the ultimate authority. He decides who comes in and who goes out. He decides. And thirdly, I want to mention about the commendation. What Jesus knows about his church. Look at verse 8. By the way, that's the Isaiah 22 on the side there. An exact quotation of what Jesus says, drawing from the imagery of the key of David. And verse 8, Jesus continues, says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, and yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. So this verse tells us God is pleased with us on those things. This is uh, his commendation on the church of Philadelphia. Verse 8 says, I know your deeds. God knows our deeds. We can't hide. We can hide from other people, but we can never hide from God. He knows our deeds. He knows our motives. He knows all things because He's omniscience. We can't, but He can. He said, I know your deeds. Yes, you may be small. Philadelphia is a very small church. You may be weak, but I know. I know your deeds, God says, Jesus says. He said, I place before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, scholars debate over what that means. Does it mean open door as in uh, Jesus is the one that opened the door for salvation? He decides who goes in and who will be saved, who will not be saved. Or, or in this verse, it is talking about opportunities. The door of opportunities for, for ministries. Uh, Personally, I go along the line of salvation in line with verse 7. If you read verse 7 together and verse 8, I think it's clearer. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. They are under persecution. They were ostracized by the Jews. And here Jesus said, but I accept you. You will always have a permanent home in my house. The door will always be open. I'm the one that's in charge of who comes in and who goes out. You are safe. Don't worry about these Jews. They one day will come down and bow before you, you say. So in line with the flow, I tend to think that it is, it is in line with, with salvation. Jesus is the one who has unlocked the door and has welcomed these believers into eternal life despite of the fact that they were being kicked out of the synagogues. They were being ostracized by their community. Door after door slammed in their faces. 
the door to heaven remained open for them. And Jesus assured them of that. Of course, we can extend that towards uh, the door, opening door as in ministry, that God always is the one that opens doors for ministry and opportunity for us. Here, he went on to command them and say, I know that you have little strength. Jesus said, I know you were weak. I know you are a small church. I know you are few in number. I know that you don't have much power. You don't have many influential members uh, in, in, in your church. I know you're not well connected. I know you're not particularly financially uh, financial influenced. I, I know all this. So in the eyes of the world, they are weak. But Jesus said, no, that is the strength. In spirituality, weakness is always strength. It is never weakness. Weakness is strength. Because it is only when you are weak, then you are strong, isn't it? In John, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul says, My grace is sufficient for you. It is only that you are weak, then you are strong. Only that you are weak, then the power of God can manifest through you so that the glory goes to God and not to you. And here God say, the Jesus says, I know you are weak. I wonder whether uh, we acknowledge that. I find as a pastor, even many churches can get caught up in bigger is better, more is superior, busy is godlier. As if like as a Christian, you need to always be busy so that you are considered godlier. But I think as I wrote in the article in the uh, uh, bulletin this month, when it comes to our spiritual condition, I always believe that God is more interested in subtraction and not addition. If you look at spirituality in the Bible, it's subtraction, it's not addition. Leave your nets, leave your business and follow me. Deny yourself, subtract this excessive attention on your own needs and wants, come and follow me. So they were weak. Weak is good. For Christian. weak is good. Weak means you rely on the Lord for strength that the power of God can display in you. And then not only that, he went on to say, I know that you have little strength. I know you're weak. That's fine with me. It's not for me to rebuild you. I commend you on that so that you can depend on me. He said, he went on to say, yet you have kept my word. You have obeyed my word. In their weakness, they simply took what they knew of God's word and obeyed it. They did not deny him. These people faithfully do what they can. They keep their word. They stay on the path of God's word. Doesn't matter what is their reasoning. Doesn't matter what is the environment that is pushing the world, is shaping and molding and pushing them and down a certain pathway on other things. They say, I'll stick to God's word. Anytime I stay on the side of God's word, anytime I draw my direction, my beliefs from God's words, when there's deferring of views on my own interpretation, my own reasoning and God's word, I stay on the side of God's word. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. They were committed. They did what they could. They worked faithfully. They did not deny him in the midst of difficulty. And I think we need to we need to absorb that as a church that we must not let the world shape us. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. The church should influence society, not the society influence the church. 
David Wells, American author, asked the right question of this seeker-sensitive churches. He said, does the church have the courage to become relevant by becoming biblical? Does the church have the courage to become relevant by becoming biblical? Is it willing to break with the cultural habits of the time and propose something quite absurd, like recovering both the word and the meaning of sin? And he went on to say, I said, I fear that the seeds of a full-blown liberalism have now seen, has now been sown, and in the next generation they will surely come to maturity. And bearing in mind, he wrote about 20 years ago. And certainly it has come to maturity. But these Christians at Philadelphia had a faithful testimony. They followed the word of God. Commendation. You have little strength, you kept my word. And you did not deny my name. You stay on the right path. And lastly, crown. What Jesus promises to his churches from verses 9 to 11. 9 to 12. What Jesus promised to his church. He said, alright, if you stay on the right path, you have little strength. I know you're weak, but I'm going to supply you strength. You'll be strong. You keep the word. You don't deny my name. You stick on that right path. This is what will happen in the future. Verse 9 says, I will make those uh, of the synagogues of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So the first thing about a reward is recognition. Recognition. Verse 9 tells us that they face opposition. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. The church at Philadelphia faced opposition from the Jews, just like the church at Smyrna. Some scholars think that the church started out meeting in the Jewish synagogue and then the Jews locked the doors on them, chased them out, keeping them from meeting there. They may, that may be why, as I said, Jesus refers to giving them an open door that no one can shut. He will eventually, he said, he will eventually, at the last days, he will eventually make sure that these people will bow down. They will bow down and worship me. Bow down and worship me and know that I have loved you. He will make the Jews admit that the church was loved by God. We, we actually don't know what transpired in the church, but when I read the verse, the, the, the connecting verse that link is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7. Remember this beautiful verse in Proverbs that say, uh, if you, if you, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even the enemies... Live at peace with Him. And when I think that, I say, wow, this is something that God will do in the future. So there's a recognition that goes along with that, the rewards that in the future, these people will bow. You know, I always tell people, if you don't bow your knees now to Jesus, one day you will. Because in Philippians chapter 2, it says, isn't it, that those who will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So we can't bow now we would bow in the future. And then verse 10, the reward is not just recognition, but relief. Relief. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, 
I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. The question that we have to ask is there is a relief. God, Jesus promised them that they will be relieved from a severe trial that they will be going through. And so the first thing we have to ask ourselves is when was or is the hour of testing that will come upon the whole world? What is a specific event within the lifetime of this church, the Philadelphia church, a significant period of suffering, persecution, famine, war, or was it something that would come in the distant future? Because Jesus also mentioned about tribulation in the future, remember? In Matthew 24, they talk about tribulation in the future. The whole world has to go through these seven years of tribulation. And so this will be the proof text, if you're familiar with this, this will be the proof text for people who believe that believers will be raptured before the tribulation. So this is the proof text for them, because it says that. Because they differ whether Christians will be raptured before the tribulation, or mid-tribulation, or Christian goes through the tribulation and will be raptured after the tribulation of the seven years period that will come upon the world in the future. Uh, and what does Jesus actually mean uh, by He will relieve them from the hour of testing? Will He keep them spiritually or will, them, will He keep them physically? Or was it both? Uh, personally, again, uh, here Jesus said He's going to protect them from a severe trials. Uh, we do not know when is this. Is this referring to the tribulation period or something that Philadelphia Church immediately went through, that God see them through? And is it to protect them physically that they don't have to go through it? Or is it that when they go through it, that Jesus promised that He will preserve them? No matter how, that they, He will see them through it. So there are various ways to look at it. But then again, personally, I'd like to give you a position that I find that it is appealing to me from my own study. I personally don't see anything in the Scripture that Jesus will always protect us physically from death when being persecuted. I can't see that inconsistent with the Scripture at all. And you see Paul the Apostle, countless godless men and women all die for their faith. Countless of uh, missionaries die for their faith. And so I can't see that that, that for Christians to claim this kind of promise that Jesus will always protect you physically. I can't see that consistent with Scripture at all. And even in the book of Revelation, if you turn to chapter 6, verse 9, it said that those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained, not pleasant, but a reality. There's a reality. may not be, be, be pleasant, but sometimes it is like that. But Jesus always promises us in the Scripture that He will be with us during trials. He will be with us, especially those most significant periods of testing right throughout Scripture. He will strengthen us that we need not fail spiritually. So I, I don't see that as a, a from this verse that keep you from the hour of trial, meaning to say that you don't have to suffer or go through, but He will preserve you right through it. And the principle is always not immediate removal from evil, but spiritual protection from within evil. 
just like all trials. It is not about escape from the trial, but the ability to persevere through the trial with the sustaining strength that Christ provides. And sometimes, if we are if we are vulnerable enough, if we are discerning enough, we will know that it is those moments that usually we are drawn closer to the Lord. It is those moments that we actually move one step up in our spiritual maturity ladder. We grow most in those moments. And characters are shaped in those moments. We are drawn closer to the Lord. Our hearts become more tender. We are understanding people better. We understand pain better. We are more sympathetic to people. We can comfort people better because we ourselves know what is it like. M. Scott Peck, a, a psychiatrist, wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. When he wrote that book, he was a Zen Buddhist. Uh, but subsequently, he became a Christian. One of his books, he says, the truth, he says this, he said, the truth is that our finest moments are most likely to occur when we are feel, deeply feeling uncomfortable, unhappy, or unfulfilled. For it is only in such moments, propelled by our discomfort, that we are likely to step out of our rugs and start searching for different ways or truer answers. So it is only in those moments, he said, those are the most finest moments. The finest moments are most likely to occur when we are feeling deeply uncomfortable or unhappy or unfulfilled. To him, that's the finest moment because it allows you to discover something which is greater. And here, uh, not just only recognition, not just only relief, and then verse 11 and 12, the literal reward, the reward, it says here, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take your crown. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take your crown. Verse 12, the one who is victorious, he said, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven and from my God and I will also write on them my new name. There is a promise of a spiritual home, pillar in the temple. We will be the pillar in the temple. Often they would have the name of a person engraved on the pillar the person was confirmed to have a right of entry into this temple. And as I said, because Philadelphia suffered severe earthquake, and therefore Jesus is also using the context and say that, don't worry, you're not going to collapse. I'm going to build you a pillar. I'm going to make you as a pillar. Usually earthquake pillar is the last one to stand, you know. Uh, I'm going to give you a pillar. They will also promise spiritual stability. As I said, they would no longer, will they go out and in. Earthquake will common in the region. Citizens will flee their homes. And for many years, they actually live in huts outside the city. They live in tents until the aftershocks are over. But Jesus is promising His church a place of stability. You will be a pillar. 
They were promised spiritual inclusions into God's program. He said God's name will be written on them as a clear identification to whom they belong. They were promised spiritual citizenship in God's city. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. What a blessed assurance. As we sang about it just now. Blessed assurance. That's our reward. So we may be weak, but let's continue to keep His word and refuse to deny Him by conforming to this world and keep serving Him. Use whatever you have in your hands to serve God. Be faithful in the way that you know how in your own little situation. And that is, to me, will bring a big smile on God's hand. Do you know Shamgar? Have you heard of Shamgar? No? Shamgar is a judge in the book of Judges. Shamgar was a judge. Uh, he had, a, he, he had an, an ox, ox goat. He used it for God. So Shamgar had an ox goat. David had a sling. Dorcas, he had a needle. Rahab, he had a rope. Samson had a jawbone. Aaron had a rod. Mary had some ointment. But they all were used for God. They were all used for God. So may we be faithful to God, serve God with what we have. Jesus said in Mark Gospel, if anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I assure you that the person will be rewarded. Jesus assured us that He will reward us for our faithful service. Every act you do for Jesus will not be forgotten. Do you know there's a verse that tells us that? All right, I know my time is up. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. That's a good way to tell pastor it's time to stop. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, and I'm done, okay? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 tells us, tells us that Jesus will not forget our service. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. God will not forget. So be faithful to God in the way you know how. The church at Philadelphia is a model for Pathway Baptist Church. They were not powerful, but they were faithful. They were not honoured by others, but they were loved by God. They were not highly influential, but they were consistently obedient. So let me just close off with the final verse that says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What are you hearing this morning? What do you need to renew your grip upon? Listen and do what the Spirit is saying to our church. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word, your divine word. Thank you for giving us your word to guide us. May we emulate Philadelphia, the church in Philadelphia. May we always believe that we are weak, we are insufficient, we are poor, we don't have it all. May we always acknowledge that.
And may we keep and obey your word and never deny you, no matter what kind of pressure we are succumbed to, especially in this modern age that we live in. Doesn't matter what, we will always stay on the side of your word. And you will count us faithful. You will reward us. You will have only commendation for us. Thank you, Lord. As we sing our closing song, Lord, to God be the glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.